Bobby Vinton will not be seen tonight so that we may bring you the following special presentation. Governor, you've seen a good deal of the state from a different point of view this week. What is your emotional reaction to, uh, to this kind of devastation? And what does it make you want to do? To see those houses pile like dollhouses on their sides, uh, to see houses tipped into the ocean and Holland and Situate, to see an area in Situate which I spent weeks in as a kid when I was three or four up in North Situate, looking like uh, a pile of kindling was uh, almost unbelievable. It was, it was really tough to believe that it was happening down below you. The other sense that I had was that those areas were just so terribly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You don't get that sense when you're on the ground, but when you look Thank down Thank you very on, much, Governor. It's rough. I'm most grateful. That's Governor Michael Dukakis back in 1978 during the blizzard of 78. For those that were around, undoubtedly you remember those days. And typical Michael Dukakis, passionate, well-spoken, a little bit dry, and then a little bit disrespected by broadcaster uh, Ted O'Brien there, sort of um, maybe emblematic of Dukakis's career, which here in Massachusetts, he was a hero to many, still a hero, uh, a fine man, a scholar, someone whose presidential uh, hopes were dashed through a series of what uh, I suppose were just, you know, PR missteps. And on the show today on Unbillable Boston, you will hear a part one of a, uh, a wide-ranging interview with uh, the governor done recently over at his office at Northeastern where he heads up the political science department. This, by the way, is David Yaz, your host, one of your hosts on Unbillable Boston. And for this chat with uh, the Duke, I am joined by Max Perlman of Hirsch Roberts Weinstein LLP and Sarah Worley of Worley Conflict Resolution. And we have a terrific chat with the governor. It's really fascinating to catch up with him about world politics as they were then and they are now, um, about that sliding doors moment in politics where uh, had things gone differently, uh, Dukakis could have been the governor and, and changed, really changed the course of American history. We get into all of that with the Duke. Check out all past episodes of Unbillable Boston on unbillableboston.com. We thank you for joining us and enjoy the show. This one's for you, Boston. Boston's a different city than it was 20 years ago. The hope rises again and the dream lives on. Larry Bird's not walking through that door, fans. The world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder. This is our f***ing city. Welcome back to Unbillable Boston, and uh, I'm here. This is David Yaz from Morgan Stanley. I'm here with Max Perlman and Sarah Worley, as usual. What's up, guys? Hey, Dave. Happy? I'm very happy. My yeah. daughter's graduating on Friday from college. Oh my goodness! Congratulations! Congratulations. Like I'm retired. That requires a, an entire separate show. So, but this is a special one because we're sitting down with Governor Michael Dukakis on campus at uh, Northeastern University, where he runs the uh, political science unit. And I want him to tell us about what he's up to because many people don't know. But um, tell me, Governor, are you uh, are you busy now as as you ever were, or, or what? As busy as ever. <laughs> I don't know why the whole world seems to think that I can solve their problems. But you know, once you're <laughs> governor, if you're if you are open and accessible, um, people keep coming to you. Come yep. to me, they come to Kitty. Yeah. And that's what we do. You know, in addition to teaching, which I love doing, and where I've been here for 24 years, and where I've watched this university, always a, a very good place, just mm -hmm. take off. 
-hmm. We had 50,000 applicants for 3,000 spots in the freshman class this past year, the highest of any non-public university in America. Mm -hmm. And part of it's Boston, and a lot of it's co-op. Yeah, the co-op is a great And great teaching program. these kids after they've come back from their co-ops is a whole different experience from a teaching standpoint. I mean, these kids are not engaging in theory. They've just been six months on Capitol Hill in Washington, six months at the State House, six months, you know, City Hall. And, uh, and we are producing some great young people. I want to tell you. And uh, do you teach? Yeah. What classes do you teach now? Um, I teach public policy and administration to undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And I teach a leadership course which is required of all MPA candidates, that is Masters of Public Administration, and a course on health policy and politics to graduate students. Mm -hmm. And I do that from May to December. And then we, difficult though it is, drag ourselves out of New England and mm -hmm. go out to UCLA and Los Angeles in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. And there I have a full teaching schedule as well. One, one undergraduate course, one graduate course in a very short 10-week quarter because they're on a quarter system. Mm -hmm. So I'm busy. I take my teaching very seriously. I think I do a pretty good job. You'd have to ask my students. And one so What does it say on Yelp, I wonder? Well, and the review sites, the review sites, you know. I thought they just did restaurants, I don't know. <laughs> I think, yeah, there must be a site that they... Yeah. they Rate my professors back um, yeah. But it's, it's, I'll tell you, these kids are an inspiration. And I must now have hundreds of former students who are out doing things out there. And I'm very proud of them. Um, UCLA does not have co-op, but it does have something called the UCDC internship for undergraduates. And two of my former undergraduates are now desk mates in the California Assembly, <laughs> each representing about 800,000 people. And I'm very proud of them. They blame me for getting, into, getting them into it. I think probably there was some kind of an inclination to do it anyway. But the chance to watch these kids just take off and, and fly and do great things is, is terrific. Do so I'm going to keep teaching. People keep saying, when are you going to retire? You say to them, when somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, I've lost it. Hmm. But I can't imagine retiring, to tell you the truth. I can assure you that you haven't lost it. What, uh, give us an example of something in your career, in your political career, that you draw upon that the students particularly take to. I take it you do use examples. Well, uh -huh. I take it you use examples from your career. Yeah, and I use, I use case studies extensively as teaching tools. Right. Because the only way I know to teach this stuff. Uh, look, I teach my mistakes, David. I mean, that's what you do, because I made tons of them. And um, you try to learn from them. Um, so, I was know, I was why did I get defeated the first time out for re-election? Because I was a pretty good talker, but I was not a very good listener, and I was not a very good coalition builder. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because when I came into the legislature in 1962, this state was one of the three or four most corrupt states in the country. You guys probably are too young to remember it, but we had a crime commission that was indicting people every day, every week. Um, so I was a reformer, you know. I was the head of the Young Turks, which of course gave my father heartburn. He was this Greek immigrant who actually was born and brought up in Western Turkey before his family was kicked out. Mm -hmm. And he's reading about his son being the head of the Young Turks in the legislature. I tried to explain to him that was just a, an expression, you know. Did you um, did your folks speak English or were you the first? Oh to speak yeah, no, they no, did. no, 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 and and I was very fortunate because my dad came over when he was fifteen, my mother when she was nine, mm -hmm. and they were 
two remarkable people. My father came over when he was 15. Couldn't speak a word of English, didn't have a nickel in his pocket. He had a couple of brothers, older brothers, who were working in the textile mills in Lowell. And that young kid, 12 years later, graduated from the Harvard Medical School. And how he did it, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems inconceivable. Mm -hmm. My mother came over when she was nine. Family settled in Haverhill, big shoe town. And an elementary school principal named Stanley Gray became almost the second father to her. Encouraged her to stay in school. She graduated from high school. Itself very unusual for a young Greek immigrant girl. And my mother was the first Greek-American young woman ever to go away to college in the history of the United States. I mean, it was absolutely, apart from going to college, but to go unescorted to Lewiston, Maine at Bates mm -hmm. College was unheard of. And she became a school teacher. Mm -hmm. So uh, while I grew up bilingual, mostly because my grandmother, my dad's mother, spoke not a word of English and she lived with us. Um, you know, it was, I mean, my parents were interested in what was going on in the world. They weren't political activists in any sense, but we, every, at six o'clock every night, this is the pre-television era, we had to listen to the CBS World News Roundup. And Time Magazine was around. As I began to understand Time Magazine, I kept telling my father that Henry Luce was kind of, you know, the right of Marie Antoinette not to believe all that stuff. But, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we, we grew up in a household that was interested in what was going on in the world. Yep. And for reasons I can't explain, I mean, I remember the Roosevelt Wilkie race in 1940. I was mm -hmm. seven. And um, always was interested in what was going on. You got your start officially at town meeting in Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken. And, you, yeah. you know, I take some pride in the fact that I have something in common with you. I'm the town moderator of the town of Sharon. My start in politics, Governor. <laughs> and probably my end. Where <laughs> are you? But you have some genetic. I do. There, there's some politics in my genes. Some, gene, gene but, uh, <laughs> some genetic uh, material there that's quite political. That's right. That's right. Look, I owe the American people an apology. If I'd beaten the old man, you'd have never heard of the kid, and we wouldn't be in this mess. So it's all my fault, and I feel that very, very strongly. Well, you mentioned that you, you, you teach your mistakes. Um, do you remember uh, talking to Katie Couric uh, a number of years back, yeah. not too yeah. long ago? Right. But you said... Um, you know, I have an apology to make to the American people. If I didn't, if I beat the old man, the kid never would have gotten to, never would have gotten his mess. Now we got another one. Just when you think they're So over. blame me. Now, did blame you mean beat in the sense of, uh, of physically? Some, no, <laughs> no, certainly. But, but do you really see that as like a, was that such a pivotal moment? I mean, I, th listen, I, you, you say you make mistakes. I think a lot of us look at this and say, how could you have known some of those things? Would it well, out? but, you know, I made a decision, which turned out to be a dumb decision, that I was not going to respond to the Bush attack campaign. If there's one lesson to come out of that campaign, it is that you just can't do that. And everybody learned from that, including Bill Clinton. And in case you've forgotten, he created a small unit in his campaign which actually called itself the Defense Department. Mm -hmm. About half of them had worked in my campaign, and all they did all day long was anticipate and respond, or in some cases, <laughs> answer before the attack, every single attack. And let me tell you, the Bush attack campaign against Clinton was every bit as tough, in some ways worse than it was against me. The difference was <clears throat> that he was ready, and so on. Now. 
Hillary has got the same problem. I mean, people are going to be beating her up. This this right. this email thing is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I don't know of a single public official of any significance at the state, local, or national level that doesn't have a private email. Mm. Because otherwise you couldn't get through to them. And guys like me use them. I mean, I don't abuse them, but, you know, if I wanted to communicate with Deval Patrick, I'd send him an email on his private email. And he would get back to me in a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. uh, what is this? It's crazy. <laughs> um, and, and Hillary's got to do exactly the same thing. Have we have we lost? Is is it frustrating? Is is that is is, is there a sort of erosion in politics over the years? No, that the answer is David. Let me jump in. If you look at the campaigns in between seventeen eighty nine and eighteen hundred, they were vicious. Oh, it's been muckraking and focusing on things. Oh, God, I mean, yep. look, uh, Jefferson's black mistress was a subject of. Huh? considerable comment. In fact, Jefferson, when he left office, I'm not sure I'm giving you this direct, but it was, this is pretty close, he said it was the happiest day of his life because he no longer had to put up with the jackals of the press. Mm -hmm. and, and the American press in those days didn't even make a pretense of being nonpartisan. I mean, they were outrageously partisan, and it was, it was vicious. Now, what's the difference? Well, it wasn't electronic. And remember, a large percentage of the population was illiterate. And the electorate itself was only about 15 to 20 percent of the population mm -hmm. because women couldn't vote, people of color couldn't vote, and poor white people couldn't vote. So you had a very limited electorate. And yet, uh, you know, these were vicious campaigns. I mean, they were tough. So there's nothing new about this. Look, it's contact sport. Yeah. Um, and I've been through a tough campaign. Particularly the second time around with Clint, uh, with, with with King, okay, I mean, yeah. it was not it was not fun and games, but um, you know there'd been a lot of polarization under Reagan. I, th I thought people were kind of getting tired of it. Ran a very positive campaign in the primary and won, and kind of figured, well, looks like a pretty good winning strategy to me. So I'm going to do the same thing, and you know, with about a, a month or a month and a half to go, it was clear that. That was not exactly the way to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that I failed to do was, I mean, I had always won with very strong precinct-based grassroots organizations and, and won a number of the primary states that way as well. But I spent too much time talking to people that I thought knew more about running, the president, running for the presidency than I did, all of whom poo-pooed this grassroots stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe for city council, but not for the presidency. You know, it's all about press. And it's, it took... Barack Obama, not once but twice, to demonstrate conclusively <laughs> that a precinct-based grassroots organization wins presidential campaign, mm -hmm. if you do it. Right. So, there we are. Lessons <coughs> learned. Unfortunately, you don't have many second chances in this business. What were the fun moments, though? What do you remember running for president that, well, that you enjoyed what, the most? Accepting that nomination in uh, Atlanta with my 85-year-old mother, a Greek immigrant, sitting there watching her son nominated for the presidency and sitting next to my Brookline High School basketball coach, Johnny, Johnny Grinnell, who um, was an extraordinary guy in his own right. And uh, David was the first adult who ever said to me, you ought to run for public office. When was that? When I was playing basketball for him. When you were, when you were, high, when you were high school. And he lived in Newton. And so he would drop off me and another guy that lived in South Brookline, and then we'd hitchhike 
home from Hammond Street and Route 9. And he hated Joe McCarthy, couldn't stand him. And we were talking about McCarthy one day, and he said, you know, you ought to seriously think about running for public office. And I revered this guy. I mean, he was a wonderful guy. Had been a legendary athlete of Tufts and stuff. Um, and his, some of the high school athletes that he coached called him up and said, we want, we want to send you to Atlanta so you can, you can watch. And Kitty had been in his home room, David, mm -hmm. as a freshman. Mm -hmm. I didn't know her. You know, later on, I said, why don't you tell me? He said, look, you were. You had, you had this girlfriend you were very enamored of it. <laughs> as a senior, you were interested in freshmen. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really know Kitty, but she claims that she handed me a cup of water on Beacon Street when I ran the marathon in 1951. <laughs> and it's entirely possible because I was dying of thirst <laughs> when I arrived in my own day. Mm -hmm. You know, we knew nothing about exercise science. And right. when we ran cross country, you didn't drink water, right? Yeah. But that was a two-and-a-half-mile race, mm -hmm. four miles in college. It wasn't 26. So, you know, these days people are taking liquid and doing this, that, and the other thing. They know a lot more about this. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got to, to, to Beacon Street, you know, I, was, I was just, you know, I was just dying of thirst. So, <laughs> people said, how you doing? I said, get me water, get me water. In those days, we had drugstores with soda fountains, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So all these kids, high school kids, are running in and out of drugstores with cups of water. And I guess Kitty was one of them. I mean, <laughs> anyway, that's uh, how many times did you run the marathon? Just once. Just that one. That was enough, right? Well, you know, in those days, there was no shoe made for running the mm hard -hmm. services. Yeah, just didn't exist. So I and my buddy Reed Wiseman, also a cross country runner at Brookline High School, um, ran that race in low kid sneakers. Serious. And we did pretty well. Three and a half hours. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. Pretty considering all the advances. It was a record field of, it was a record field of three hundred. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you could really see us. <laughs> I, I remember uh, my my dad used to take me to the marathon every year and the the one year that is just indelible to me is is nineteen seventy eight. I remember watching Bill Rogers, you know, a local boy win the marathon. Right. right. You're our governor, you're you're a, a kid from Brookline. And um, then I remember the, you know, the blizzard, you know, and um, and I was reminded of it when uh, Deval Patrick and um, and uh, Mayor Menino and others stood in front of cameras as they were in the days after the bombing at the marathon. And I don't, I don't know if it's a forced analogy, but you were on TV frequently, um, yeah. uh, famously wearing a sweater and. Um, the only state employee who reported to work, right? During no, the <laughs> was it? There were a lot of them out in the field. Okay, I'll tell you. You right, know, sure. Working hard, no, right? But um, some great people. Is is that a um, is that tell us about what you remember about that about going about on TV? Pleasure. Yeah, calming people's. Well, it was interesting. Um, I did a talk, a, a radio call-in show once a month, and uh, the studio at the time was down, kind of close to the the uh, Copley Plaza Hotel. Mm -hmm. Lou Murray, who was my community affairs guy, picked me up to take me down there, um, and Lou would do the show with me because when somebody called and said, God, I got a problem, so on and so forth, we'd talk about it and I'd say, uh, I want you to, when we finish up our conversation, Lou Murray is here, I want you to talk to him, give him the details and so on and so forth. So we did this routinely. Um, and the snow had begun to fall. I recall what afternoon, mm -hmm. 
Something like that. Yeah, I remember, or maybe right around noon. I remember yeah. sitting in yeah. class, and they told everyone we're not going out for recess today. And by the time I got to the studio, it was obvious we had ourselves a, a real humdinger. Not only that, some people forget this, but we had had a storm about ten days earlier, and I think maybe twelve or fourteen inches. Not snow huge, banks. but significant. Yeah, and the snowbanks were still were still on the still around. Too. And um, I love telling this story, David. So I have a snowblower, which I bought at Sears in 1963. You still have it? Not anymore, but <laughs> there's another story that I'll tell, okay. tell you about, about the Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, asking me if I would give it to them. And I said, well, I will when it has and if it stops performing. And it finally did about eight years later, and I wrote them a letter saying, you can now pick it up and must have been the new director who said, well, we have so much stuff around here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I sadly rolled it out in the Brookline Public Works Department, mm -hmm. took it away. Anyway, and I ran out of gas. And I had this big old parka from my Korean days, which I put on, again, I was wearing. So I take my gas can and I trudge up Alton, uh, Alton Place to a Getty, which is on Harvard Street on the other side. And for some reason, all of the Gettys are run by Greek immigrants. I don't know how that happened. And I didn't know this guy, but I approached the, all the other gas stations were closed, and I and there was, the pump seemed to be closed, but there was a light in the office, and there were two men there talking, one of whom I knew, a guy named Robinson, and, uh, and this guy who had the map of Greece all over his face. So uh, I walked in and greeted Robinson, and I said, the Greek, hey, do you have gas? Well, he then echoed me, no, we don't have any. Eh? Well, then I don't have it? Okay. So I hitch up my, I don't know where I'm going to get it, but go back out into this howling blizzard. And about, I've taken about 10 steps, and all at once I hear a voice saying, Hey, Mikey! <laughs> <laughs> so I turn around, I'll never forget this guy, he had a big gold tooth in the middle of his mouth. And as I get close to me with a big grin, he said, I have a little. <laughs> Never forgotten it. Um, but that was the first one yeah. before we hit the second one. Yeah. Um, now, fortunately, David, I had a Secretary of Public Safety who was an extraordinary guy. His name was Charlie Barry, mm -hmm. an Irish kid from South Boston, started in the Boston Police when he was 19, and became the number three guy in the Boston Police Force. And uh, when I was putting a cabinet together, I knew I wanted an experienced police commander, but somebody who had experience with community policing, because even then, I was very committed to this notion. I thought the, I thought pulling cops off the off the street and the beat and sticking them in cars was a big mistake. Hmm. And uh, it was Barney Frank who said to me, "If that's who you're looking for, you want Charlie Barry." Mm -hmm. And Barney at that mm -hmm. time was what the number three guy in city government. Interviewed him and bingo, you know, off him the job the next day. I mean, just there was something about Barry. Now, among other things, he's not only a great police commander, but he was obsessed with the importance of emergency planning. And thank God for that, because nobody else was, including U.S. Truly. He was the old man of the administration, 52. I was 42. And I was surrounded by all these eager young people. And um, he really spent a lot of time on this emergency planning stuff, which can be kind of boring, you know, you're planning and planning, planning for emergencies which may never come. 
The other, the one thing I did, which I think was helpful, was that from the get-go, I put the National Guard under Barry. You know, the governor's son, because the National Guard had been kind of dangling around out here someplace, didn't seem to report to anybody and that kind of thing. And I said, Charlie, the National Guard is yours. You get a hold of the agent general, and you tell him he's reporting to you. So the National Guard was very much a part of his, what, public safety cabinet, and very deeply involved in emergency planning. So when after snow started falling, um, this, this plan of Barry's went into effect, and uh, it was remarkably effective. The one thing we learned, however, which I think every governor since has clearly absorbed, is if it looks like a tough storm, tell people not to come to work or send them home early. And as you know, by the time people got on 128 at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, things were really starting to get... Uh, but, but Barry was the hero of that thing. I mean, I just would say to him, Charlie, what do you want him to say? And then I got on television and said it. But without him and without the work that he had done, it would have been a much, much... But did you find it important as a... As a I mean, was the sweater uh, by design? Well, well, symbolic? I don't, I don't know about you, but I mean, I don't wear shirts and ties in the middle of snow, storms. People say, well, there's a sweater. <laughs> the thing that happened was is that after the storm, I couldn't make a speech without being presented with another sweater. <laughs> and I finally, don't tell the folks who presented it to me, but I finally took about 15 of these things and I went down to Morgan Memorial and I said, look, there must be people around here that need a sweater. I can't, I mean, I'm a sweater guy anyway, usually, but I said, I got, I got enough sweaters to last me a lifetime. So. Mm -hmm find worthy candidates for these sweaters. <laughs> That's the podcast for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. More from Governor Michael Dukakis uh, next week on Unbillable Boston. Again, check out all past episodes at unbillableboston.com. If you want to email us, unbillableboston at gmail.com. See you next time. <laughs>